Pentecost Sunday, as you've heard a couple of the times, where we celebrate the Holy Spirit empowering the church for its life and mission, something that Jesus implored his disciples to wait for, something that Jesus, the, new, the apostles and the New Testament authors would describe as something essential to life, uh, that we would live in the Spirit and that the Spirit would be life. And again, when we look at these things in Pentecost Sunday, how, why are we celebrating that? Pentecost, little, little bit of information for you. You know what Pentecost means? Anybody here know what Pentecost means? It's got to be at least one person in here. A couple Bible college grads. Do we have one at the back? Is that, do you know what it means? Pascal. Pascal means Pentecost. Is that what it means? Did anybody know what Pentecost word, the word Pentecost means? I'll fill, I'll fill you in. Oh, over there. Close. It, it leads to that. But this is all it means, all right? Profound. This is profound for you. This isn't even in my notes, but it's profound. Pentecost means 50. Yay! Celebrate 50 Sunday! <laughs> so why do we celebrate Pentecost, 50? All right? 50 days after Easter, after the Passover, 50 days after that, they had a, they had a celebration. They would have a celebration in Jewish culture. And remember, Christianity, the, the news that Jesus brought was first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. First for the nation of Israel, saying, you are God's chosen people with whom I've chosen to bring salvation to the world. So I'm giving you first dibs at salvation. Then it's going to everybody, all right? And so within their culture, 50 days after Passover, they celebrated another festival, right, that celebrated the life that God was giving them through the harvest, okay? And so they would celebrate life through the harvest, all the breads. So the barley harvest would just be, would have ended and the, the wheat harvest was just there coming in. And so they were like, this is, look at the life we have through the bread, all right? And we know Jesus is the bread and that Jesus was life. And then we know that Jesus also talked about the, the Holy Spirit was life. And so God chose 50 days after Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, on the day the Jewish people would already be celebrating life through the harvest that God had given them, he chose that week to say, I'm giving you life, the Holy Spirit. I'm pouring out my spirit on this day so you know that this is the celebration of life in me, that you have life not because of a harvest of bread, because of the pouring out of my spirit for you. And that is the promise that he gave us. So it's profound for Jewish people as far as when they start looking into what 50 means, because 50 is also the year of Jubilee for them. Every 50 years, every debt was repaid, every broke, everything from brokenness and slavery and everything that, that was reset and you were free. And where the spirit is, there is freedom. So you can see in a Jewish culture, this is mind-blowing for them when they would put the connections together of how powerful it was for Pentecost and how we as Gentiles uh, get to join in on that. We don't understand the complete significance, um, but it's powerful when we allow the Holy Spirit to give us all those things, freedom, empowerment for mission, uh, 
closeness with the with God Himself and being right inside of us, empowering us for His mission. It's so so beautiful, and so I'm sure, like you or like me, you're hoping that the reality of Acts 2 gets lived out in our time where the power of the Spirit goes out and people are saved and we all live in one accord and we share our belongings and the truth goes out. Guess what it did for those 120 that gathered in that upper room though? The Holy Spirit empowering them caused them to live counterculturally, caused them to spill out of that room and say, we're actually gonna live differently than the culture around us. And we feel that the power of the Holy Spirit is going to enable us for that journey. Not to be victorious over the culture, but to live victoriously in the culture. That despite of the fact that we're going the opposite way that the culture is going, we have the power of God within us to stand, to stand firm and to continue standing in the midst of a culture that's going in a completely different direction. Our countercultural mission is each Christ follower serving as a faithful presence by trusting in God's power and living differently from cultural norms. So as a result of Jesus' teaching and his fulfilling uh, what the Old Testament was pointing to, everyday living of those disciples was embracing truths that would be counter-cultural. And as they lived as members of the kingdom of heaven, and while there's some cultural issues that are going to be the same for us as they were for them, uh, there's often some that aren't the same. We don't deal with Roman soldiers telling us to carry their packs. We don't deal with oppressors in that same way. But there's many truths and many challenges that still do apply. Some challenges that are very hard. And uh, not the same type of challenge, but a challenge nonetheless that maybe can help us understand some of the pressures that we face. When I was just beginning my ministry calling and, uh, and, and working this out, which is a part of what we've been talking about this series, about how we hear and understand God's calling for us personally. As I was beginning, I had the opportunity to step into a church as a youth pastor. Uh, the pastor that was there was a mentor of mine and, and a very good friend and is in pastoring in um, Smith Falls around the corner here. Um, but uh, I had the chance to come in right after he had left. And the church didn't quite know what they were doing, so they had hired me as an interim to go, we got a year here, we'll give you a year contract so we can figure things out, and then we can figure out what we really want to do in the future. And you're, you, you can come in and be uh, a fill-in for this year while we look for that permanent solution, of which I was able to be a candidate. So I had a, a year-long interview, a job interview right there. So right away, though, the way the church had set it up was that somebody from the, from the board would be a representative for you on the board, but also advocate for you and things like that. And so I had a meeting with my board member. And my board member, first meeting, we're talking days on the job, says to me, sits me down in the office that I had at the church, and he says, I don't believe in you. And I don't think you're the right guy for the job. I don't think you should really be doing this at all. Great, eh? Talk about a lump in your throat when you're sitting there and you're like, mm. whew, all right. <laughs> this should be good. This should be a great year, all right? It's tough when we have hard things that we're being told 
things that look like from the outside, it's going to be really rocky and really tough. And that was within the church and me trying to figure out whether or not I had God's call on my, on my life. And what would seem like it was immediately crushing, I'd regain my bearings and I would cling to what I know is true about who I am and about what God is calling me to. But harsh messages that we receive, when they're spoken to us, they can easily become a stumbling block. They can become a stumbling block to what we're supposed to live out. In that case, for me, it was a negative, harsh statement that could potentially cause me to get off route from where God wanted me to go. But conversely, sometimes there's harsh statements that God has for us that can derail us the same way. Where God has a a hard truth, a hard reality about what life is really like. And and we're like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I want to view reality that way. And we have to take a look at those. Last week, we said that God's word tells us that there's a narrow gate. And the path that leads to life is a hard and tough path. But the path that leads to destruction is wide and easy. For a lot of people, that hard message right there, it's enough to become a stumbling block to the truth, to receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. But here, listen to this. First, no other person could love you as deeply and as perfectly as God loves you. Second, every person without exception has an eternal destination heaven or hell. Third, that eternal destination is defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I believe that God is more loving than we could ever imagine. And I also believe at the same time that God is more holy than we could ever imagine. And while God may love you deeply, His holiness demands justice for the rebellion in our hearts towards him. And we are so fortunate that God in his character is also graceful and that he offers Jesus as his propitiation or as his substitution for the punishment that we would all deserve for our rebellion. And this becomes countercultural because the world, apart from God, does not feel the weight of glory does not feel the weight of his wrath. Even that word can trigger us, wrath. Figure God has wrath. He has holiness that is so perfect that if comes across as wrath to those who will not accept it or call upon it, people may say, implying that there's some defense of their, review, their view of reality, that there's no way, there's no way after, after seeing this loving God, that anybody could still reject him. Nobody could reject God after seeing this loving God. Regarding whether that's true or not, that if people see God, they will change. Jesus told a profoundly sobering story. In a series of parables that he was telling, he confronts Pharisees who though they thought they were telling the truth and they were observing the, uh, the Old Testament laws strictly, they had compromised their hearts and would justify their behavior, specifically their greed and their, 
their desire for power. And so they ridicule him for teaching about using your wealth to store up for yourself riches in heaven instead of riches on earth, to steward it well because it's not yours anyway. And he finishes with a parable about a rich man who had lavish wealth but would ignore the poor, even the poor right at his doorstep. And there was a poor man named Lazarus that was, Lazarus that was right there. And in the parable, they both die and end up in quite different places. In the parable, which isn't reality, uh, the man, the rich man, is in hell. And he can see that Lazarus is across this chasm in heaven with Abraham. And he yells out to Abraham to send Lazarus just to dip his finger in water and, and touch it to his tongue so that he could, he could be refreshed because of the agony that he's in in hell. But when Abraham denies him that fact, that he cannot cross that chasm, he asks that Lazarus will be sent back to his brothers because he's got five brothers back home. He's like, send Lazarus back from the dead to them because when they see Lazarus back from the dead, it'll shake them and waken them to the truth, the reality of the way they're living and they'll love God and they'll serve God. The original Scrooge story, I guess, eh? Send back somebody from the past, a ghost from the past, to awaken me to a new reality. But listen carefully to how Jesus responds to, in that parable to the Pharisees who he's speaking about, who should have known better. And this is, we'll start with um, the, the rich man talking to Abraham. And he said then, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Crazy, isn't it? you do not hear from Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Prophetically in this, in this parable, he's, he's speaking to them about himself, about how he will die and rise from the dead, and yet they will not be convinced. They've had Moses and the prophets in order to explain to them the truth, the reality of this world, and they still haven't listened. And when Jesus dies and rises again, they will continue to not believe. Counterculturally, we have to live with that truth. Since the fall, we have chosen to believe that our sin does not lead to death, but makes us like God, equal to him, which was the original temptation there. You will surely you will not die, but you will be like God. We've continued to believe the lie that our sin, our disobedience to God, our rebellion from Him doesn't lead to death. It leads to being like Him. But like the rich man found in hell in the parable, 
the chances that those in hell love God or want to be with him, they're pretty low. What they want is an option that doesn't exist. Full self-government and fulfillment apart from God. Or simply said, to live the way they want and still have all the rewards of heaven. But we are not the ones who get to judge. But either in adoration or in compliance, all humanity will acknowledge God. In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it says this, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you catch that last part? God will receive his glory. And it may seem like ego to us where God's like, no, 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 no. You're all going to bow down and tell me I'm God. You're all going to bow down and say he is God. Jesus Christ is Lord. You're going to do that whether you want to or not. You're going to worship me in it or you're going to bow and say, I was wrong, completely wrong. You are God. Seems like ego when we hear that, doesn't it? Because if any of us were to do that, it's exactly that. It's exactly ego if we say, I am better than you. But if he does not receive all the glory, if there's another who earns even a smallest amount of glory, then what Jesus does on the cross for us doesn't earn a salvation. God demands all the glory because only he can be glorified. Only he is worthy to be lifted up. Only he is perfect in his love, in his care, in his justice. He demands all the glory because no one else deserves glory. He is God alone. And for us in our culture, the idea of hell and the reality of people facing that, it often becomes a blaming or a misconstrued caricature of God saying, but a loving God, he can't actually send people to hell, really. Loving God wouldn't do that. But it isn't a defect in God's character. It's a hardness in the hearts of humanity. We see it not only in people we might expect who are far from God, but even those who are somewhat close to him. Think of it. Jesus had 12 disciples that he chose to walk with him. They literally walked around Israel with him. He would talk with them. He would share meals with them. They would see the miracles that he would do. Multiple lives would be transformed around them because of Jesus, and they would all have their own personal moments of transformation with Jesus. But in the midst of that, one of his disciples, Philip, said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Show us God, because then that's all we need. That's enough for us. They have Jesus right in front of them, doing all these things, but they want something else. They want something more. Now, how does he respond? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have spoken to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Even in our pursuit, we can need correction because we miss the point. We can lose it and miss the point of what God is teaching us and showing us and how we're supposed to live because we are looking for something other than who Jesus is and what Jesus offers. We look at what he brings to us and asks of us and what it looks to to live with Jesus. And we're like, surely there's got to be something else that I need to see in order to fully buy into this. Another disciple, Judas, he spends years, the same three years, walking with God, yet he doesn't open his heart to God. When Jesus does not look to assert himself in authority on earth, but seeks heavenly authority of our hearts, not our politics or our geography, what does he do but betray? We will falter if Jesus isn't Lord the way he wants. We will falter if we try to make him Lord in the way that we want. The lost, Pharisees, Judas, and sometimes even earnest disciples, they do not open their hearts to God when God is right there in their midst. And that's when the word of Jesus and that parable ring true for us again today. If they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Who else? Who else could God love? Do sorry, who else could God I'm reading my line, and I wrote it wrong, so i got (laughs) to rethink what I was saying there. Who else but God could offer us redemption, restoration, adoption, heaven? Who else could do that? So it's true, or so is it true. There's no way, after really seeing God, could people reject him. Sadly, It isn't true that some people are going to see God. Some people are going to come face to face with him and they're not going to accept him. They're still going to reject him. And is it true that a loving God won't send people to hell? That's just a false argument. In the great divorce, C.S. Lewis once said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. But it is the very mark of a perverse desire that seeks what is not to be had. If we seek to do everything and anything we want in this world, without consequence, yet still have the reward of heaven. We're missing the mark. As in the garden, and so too today, God warns us that our own choices can lead to our own destruction. Romans 6, 20 to 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards of righteousness. 
But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things for which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. In its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a priority for us to remain steadfast in our understanding regardless of the beliefs of the culture we found ourselves in, regardless of the freedoms that it it has that lead to death. In it all, we also cling to the truths that can sustain and hold us when we have loved ones who have yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should find repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You and I, for such a time as this, while we still have air in our lungs to breathe, while we have truth in our mouths and obedience in our hands and in our feet to walk out, we are called to live a countercultural mission, serving his faithful presence, trusting in his power, and living differently from the cultural norms. It's with sober hearts and minds that we feel the embrace of eternity and allow the Holy Spirit to use our lives to make a Jesus-sized difference in those around us. Today, it could be your day of salvation. And if you're here and you've never responded to the call of God, you've heard the gospel presentation before, you heard that Jesus loves you and that he cares for you, but you have not yet responded to that, to make him Lord of your life, not just a part of your life, but the literal Lord of your life, that he is your king. And he tells you who you are and what you are to do. I, I ask you today to consider that and give your life to Jesus. For those of us who have put our place and our trust in him, what does this mean for us? What are we to do living counterculturally in this way? Stand firm. Stand firm. Yes, are there a million other ways that people can see the future reality of, of life and, and the afterlife? Yes, there is. But stand firm. Stand firm in what we know to be true about who God is about the reality of our life, reality of sin, the reality of Jesus Christ. Share the truth of life in grace. Don't just share the consequences, the negative consequences, but share what truth in life of G- with Jesus looks like. We don't need to go around telling people that they're all going to hell and judging them for their actions. But rather, we need to invite them into life with Christ. 
Is the, the awareness of where reality leads us to a part of that? Yes. But it's not our opening statement. Our opening statement is, Jesus loves you. Our opening statement is to take the words of Jesus and say, I've come to bring you life and life abundantly. To say that there's a new way of living that doesn't lead to the destruction that you're, you're bound to. There's a way of freedom and of peace and of wholeness and of fulfillment because of Jesus Christ, who can be your Lord and Savior. Because without him, we're all leading to destruction. So share the truth in grace. Know what a heaven culture, a heaven, heavenly culture is like. Do you know the culture of heaven? Do you know the character of God? Because that is the culture of heaven. Do you live out the character of God? Because that is the culture of heaven. We see it all through our Bible, what the character of God is. You can look in, in lots of passages in the New Testament and study the character of God. God talks about love. What does love look like? We can look in Galatians. We can see what it looks like. We can look in Corinthians in chapter 13, see what love is, and we can go, all right, there's the character of God. I'm going to live those things out. So study your Bible. Get to know what the character of heaven is like so that you can live it out here and now. And embrace the Holy Spirit for an empowered life of fellowship with God. On Pentecost Sunday, as we celebrate Pentecost, we want to live an empowered life. That's the amazing thing about this, that God didn't ask you to do this all on your own. He didn't say, I'm going to save you, but I'm going to leave you to your own energy and your own power to try to figure this out through life. But instead he said, you have my spirit, my presence in you to lead you, guide you, empower you, convict you, but also bring to remembrance the words that I've given you so that you can live this the way I've asked you to. I want to see you, you to see your life with the diagram that we're putting up on the screens there. Very deep diagram, I know. But I want you to think of it this way. You've got your, your uh, curly brackets on the outside, right? We're all included in that one. And that is God's call for us to live out our lives in Christian service. That everywhere you go, everything you do, you don't do so as yourself, you do so as a follower of Jesus. You do so reflecting the character and conscience of Christ. Everyone who follows Jesus should do this. The next set of brackets, the square ones, the hard ones. God calls some of us to be in, in positions of ministry leadership. Some of you have risen to that within this church, and some others you are called to rise higher in this church to positions of leadership where not only do you live out your Christian mission everywhere and anywhere you go, but within this context, you step into leadership to help shepherd people here in the church. And lastly, the third normal bracket that we use all the time, God calls a few of us to Christian, a Christian assignment or a position of ministry leadership, where you're in a role, you're in a pastoral role in a church, and God has a call on your life. And there's bound to be someone here today that has God's call in their life they have yet to fulfill. So today, in a lost and broken world, what is your response to how God is calling you? 
whichever bracket you find yourself in, that you need to step into and live more fully. What does it look like for you to step into those positions? And are you open to God calling you more narrowly? Not everybody has that, ro- that path chosen for them, but I'm sure there will be some here. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you've loved us so dearly. You loved us so lavishly that you sent your son for us. That while we were lost in our sin, while we are still enemies to you, God, you had sent your son to offer us salvation, to offer us a restored relationship with you, to offer us freedom in Christ. So God, I just pray for anyone here that is making that choice in their life for the first time, stepping into freedom in you because they're giving their lives to you that this is their first step in doing so. And then what follows is a lifelong pursuit of you, of stepping into the things that you ask for us, submitting our lives to you day after day. God, for all of us, we're taking another step in being countercultural and understanding the reality that we live in as followers of Jesus that may differ from the world around us. Thank you.